I'm going to pray before we deal with this verse, this passage. Lord God, we thank you for your word, um, how good it is, how rich and full. And now, Lord, um, this is a, a challenging passage for us this morning. We ask that you would speak to us from your word. Teach us rightly. Help us. Teach our minds and teach our hearts, we pray. Amen. Well, the first problem we face as we look at this passage is uh, it's not addressed to more than half of us. Um, likewise, wives. Well, I'm not a wife. A lot of you aren't wives. I'm going to ask you if you'd stick around anyway. <laughs> um, because it's God's Word. All Scripture, says Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is, is God-breathed and uh, profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So I think there'll be value for all of us here from the Word of God. The second question <clears throat> is, um, number two, does this ancient text still apply today? And if you're following along in that outline, your bulletin, that's point two. Does this ancient text still apply today? <clears throat> I know the minute I read the first line of the verse, wives be subject to your own husbands, some people are going to say, don't tell me that's still for today. That's an ancient culture, a different world. You can't just do everything the Bible says. I mean, after all, did you greet one another with a holy kiss this morning? The Bible says that in 2 Corinthians 13, 12. Did you wash one another's feet this morning? John 13, 14 says you all also ought to wash one another's feet. So we just can't take the Bible and apply it today and say we have to. This wives be subject to your husbands. It's for a different time. The problem is that's bad logic. The reason it's bad logic is that it says some of the Bible doesn't apply directly today or is not for us to obey today. Therefore, all of the Bible is not for us to obey today. But where does that get you? You know, that, that, and you end up throwing out the whole thing. Um, you don't have to greet one another with a holy kiss, so you don't have to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? You don't have to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and strength. That's in the Bible. How can you throw out part of it and not throw out the rest of it? And, and uh, even with regard to husbands and wives, if you throw out wives be subject to your husbands, then what are you going to do with uh, verse 7 when Peter says, um, likewise husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as the weaker vessel. Don't you want husbands to honor their wives? And you go to the book of Ephesians, what are you going to do with this? Throw out, wives be subject to your own husbands. That's for another culture, another time. Ephesians 5.22, well then what about Ephesians 5.25? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That for another culture, another time too? If one's not for the day, for today, why should we say the other one's not for, or is for today? There's a better approach. The better approach is to ask... Just sit back and think now, why are there some things in the Bible that have a different application today? I think the principle is this. The principle is that there are some physical actions, some actions with symbolic meaning that change their application from culture to culture. So, holy kiss was a greeting. Today we shake hands or perhaps give a friend a hug. 
In Japan, people bow. It's, it's the physical action, but the action has a, a different mean. It, it's different actions that have that meaning in different cultures. And so, um, uh, foot washing, well, if you live in a dusty climate with no paved roads and people are wearing sandals, yeah, when people come in, you wash their feet. But here in Arizona, you give them a bottle of cold water. And I think Jesus used foot washing also as an example to show that we should humble ourselves and serve others and care for them. But the point is, apart from this special category of actions with symbolic meaning, it's hard for me to find commands in the New Testament that don't apply to Christians today. Now, I've, I've taught Bible at the graduate level for 28 years, and I want, you, and I, and I want to tell you something about how I apply the, the New Testament to my life. I read it every morning and I try to obey it, just like you do. I read Luke 19 this morning. Say, okay, Lord, this is your word to me. Help me know how to, how to apply it to my life. I don't say, oh, that's not for me. Now, I agree that there are some things in the, the Old Testament takes a little more work because there are some things in the Old Testament that were written to the Jewish people for that culture and that time, and the Bible makes that clear. And then there are other things, and we have a pretty good way of sorting that out. There are other things that are principles for all time. And even in the New Testament, you might have to work at understanding what a passage means, and Jamie helps us understand that week after week, does a great job, but it's all God's Word. And yes, this verse, wives be subject to your husbands, it's God's Word, and it does apply to us today. Now, I am aware, as, as Pat mentioned, I'm aware that scholars have raised objections <clears throat> to these verses <clears throat> about wives and husbands, and they've written articles and books, and I've written articles and books, and I'm not going to go into that here. John Piper and I edited a whole book about that called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood at one time. And there are some other things that you can look at if you want. It's on a website called cbmw.org, counselonbiblicalmanhood.org. But, but just for today, I'm going to say, look, with regard to this verse, I don't think those objections are valid. And so if I'm going to explain and teach God's Word to you, I can't just explain the verse away and sweep it under the rug. So I think what we need to say is, Lord, this verse is hard. It's hard to hear. Please help us understand it rightly. Please help us see how good and wise and pure it is. Lord, Lord, we need your help on this one. So let's look at it then. What does it mean? Point one, what submission does not mean? I want to clear away some misunderstandings first. First point is, submission does not mean that your husband is smarter or wiser. Now, I know some of you are saying, I knew that already. <laughs> Why do I have to come to church to learn that? I mean, <laughs> can't you tell me something new? But look, Peter says, likewise you wives... Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, that is, they're not believers, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Peter recognized that on the most important question in the whole universe, how can we be right before God? In a number of cases, the wife had it right and the husband had it wrong. And he wanted their wives to act in such a way that the husband would change their mind. 
So submitting to your husband's leadership doesn't mean your husband is smarter or wiser. Point two, point B. Submitting to your husband's leadership doesn't mean your opinions don't matter. The same verse shows that wives' opinions matter a lot. The wife had the gospel right, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the husband didn't. And now, just in practical way in, in, in my own life, I listen to my wife, Margaret, more than any other person in the whole world. She's wise. She trusts God. She reads the Word. She prays. She's sensitive to God's leading and guidance, and she knows me better than anybody in the whole world. And I trust her. I'm not, I'm not saying I always agree, but even when we don't agree, when I hear what she has to say, it moves me. It modifies what I'm thinking. It wasn't always that way. I'm, well, early in our marriage, I don't think I listened very well. And we'd, we'd be trying to decide, should we do A or B as a couple? <clears throat> And I'd say, well, I think we should do A, and here's some reasons. And Margaret would have, oftentimes she'd have an instinct where she'd come to a decision, and she said, no, I think, I sh- I think we should do B. And I'd say, well, why? And she'd like, give a reason. And, and I was on the debate team in high school. <laughs> so every time she'd give a reason, I'd give four reasons back why it was wrong, and I'd give more reasons for my view. And You know what happened after a while? Pretty soon, Margaret stopped giving her opinion. She said later, it felt like my ears were closed. <clears throat> and it felt like her voice was taken away. And then what happened is we went to a marriage retreat in Minnesota. It was put on by Marriage Encounter. Today, there are wonderful retreats similar put on by uh, Family Life. And, and uh, anyway, at that retreat, we'd hear a speaker and then we'd go have to go fill out some questions in a notebook and write our answers to some questions, and then we'd trade notebooks. And when I saw what Margaret was writing, I realized her heart. And I, and I just I hadn't been listening. I hadn't been valuing her opinions. I had to repent and ask for forgiveness. See, in marriage, God gives us double wisdom to face any question. And husbands, if you don't listen to your wife's wisdom, you're trying to, trying to decide a question with half the wisdom that God given, made available to you. Well, how good is that? And wives, I just want to say to you, your opinions do matter. And I realize that husbands and wives are often very different in the way they think, the way they value things, the way they judge and evaluate things and the way they come to conclusions, but they're different. It's not a better or a worse. And, and wives participate actively in the decision-making process that you go through as a couple each day in different things, large and small. Your husband needs to hear your opinion. He needs you to be involved, to be interested, to, to think together about things. Your opinions matter. Point C, Submission does not mean you should follow your husband into sin. In the Bible, being subject to an authority 
does not mean you should obey the authority when the authority says you should sin against God because your allegiance is always to a higher authority to God. <clears throat> a few verses earlier, Peter had said, be subject to the government, but it's for the Lord's sake that Peter, that Peter says that we are to be subject to those authorities over us. And in the Bible, there are many examples where people were under an authority, particularly a governmental authority, and the government told them to disobey God, and they didn't do it. And God honored them. Esther, there was a law that you were not to go in before King Ahasuerus unless you were invited. And if you went in without invitation, the penalty was death. But Esther needed to go and plead with the king to save her people, the Jewish people. And so Esther said, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She disobeyed. The authority, who was her husband and the king. And God blessed her for it. And the king heard her plea. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The king said, bow down before the golden image. They said, no, we will not. And God rescued them and honored them. In the New Testament, the Sanhedrin said, don't preach the gospel. And the apostles knew that Jesus had said, preach the gospel. And Peter and the apostles, Acts 5.29, say, we must obey God rather than men. The book of Exodus, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, said, kill all the baby boys born to the Jewish people. But the book of Hebrews then looks back on that and says, by faith, Moses' parents didn't obey because they trusted in God and they kept Moses alive. So, wives, here's the application. If your husband ever says, sign this false income tax form or watch this pornographic movie with me, or will you lie for me to cover up something that happened at work? You have to say, John, I love you very much. I love you more than anybody in the whole world. I'm your wife, and I'm subject to your authority. But this is morally wrong, and I cannot agree to sin against God. And then maybe also something like this. John, can we talk about an alternative? Can we see if an accountant has a solution to this tax problem? Can we watch some other movie together? John, I'd be so proud of you if you just went to your boss and tell him honestly that you overslept. We don't have to lie. I'm on your side, John. Let's solve this together. Submission does not mean you should follow your husband into sin. Point D. Submission does not mean you're less valuable than your husband. 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter says, Likewise, live with your wives. Husbands, live with your wives. In an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Showing honor to your wife, honoring them as as joint heirs, fellow heirs, equal heirs, equal participants in the grace of salvation in Christ Jesus. Genesis 1, 27, the very first page of the Bible, says we're equal in value before God because it says we were both created in the image of God. It says, so God created man in his own image. 
That means to be like God and to represent Him on the earth. It's the greatest privilege, the greatest status of any creature that God made in the whole universe to be in His image. God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him male and female. He created them. Same sentence, same verse. We're both in the image of God. And so much of, much of culture and much of world history has said men are better than women, men are more valuable than women, but page one of the Bible says that's a lie. That view is wrong. We're equal before God in value. Equal in importance. But you might say, well, wait, we're different. Aren't you just going to say we're different? Aren't you going to say that the husband has an authority or a leadership role? Yes, I am. Different doesn't mean not equal in value. You can be equal in value, but you don't have to be the same. Now let me ask you this question. Which is more valuable? An apple or an orange? You can't say, can you? They're, equal, they're, 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 they're both good fruit that God made for us and gave us. Now they're different. They're better for some things and not for others. Now, if you want to make orange juice, this works a lot better. And if you want to make apple juice or apple pie, then you want to use this one. They're different, but they're equal. Does that make sense? And that's us as men and women. We're different, oh, so different, wonderfully different. But equal in value before God. Equal in value doesn't have to mean the same. Point E, what submission does not mean. Submission does not mean it's okay for husbands to be selfish or cruel. There's a pattern. When the Bible talks to people who have authority over others, it also warns them not to abuse that authority. First Peter 3, 7, Peter says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. So he's going to warn, warn husbands to show honor to their wives. And it's important even to God. So he says, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Jamie will talk about that next week. Colossians 3, 8, uh, Paul says, husbands, after he says, wives, submit to your husbands, he says, husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. He warns those in authority against misusing their authority or abusing it or be cruel or being cruel or selfish. And then when he says, children, obey your parents, he says, father, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Submission doesn't mean it's okay for husbands to be selfish or cruel. Now, what do I mean by selfish? Selfish means doing what you want to do, not what would please your wife. And I fail at that a lot. But I'm not going to talk about that right now. <laughs> but I'll give you an example of yesterday. It was Saturday. We got up kind of late. And when I get up in the morning, first thing I want is a cup of tea and one of these unbelievably good protein muffins that Margaret makes for me from a special recipe. So I got up, kind of got dressed, and I'm, I'm going to go get a protein muffin. Margaret said, you know, could, could we go down to this sale at Holland Boone? It's starting, it was starting in a few minutes. And I said, sure, but could, could you wait just a few minutes to like get that muffin and zap it in the microwave and put some jam on it and, and finish it? And I'll, I'll be right there. I'll be ready to go. She said, okay. She said, I'll, I'll be out in the car. So you know what I did? 
I walked out to the car, and with a smile I said, you know, I'm putting that sale before my muffin. And I got points for that. <laughs> Being in charge doesn't give you the right to be selfish. Or cruel. Now I talk very bluntly to men here. Husbands, to single men who may someday be married, to boys who may someday be husbands. Never, never, never are you to strike your wife or be mean to her or do something that hurts her just to show that you are in charge. Never. And of course, it applies to wives, too. I mean, we don't have a monopoly on sin. Uh, wives, you're never to strike your husband or, or be mean or cruel to him. But, but I'm especially talking to husbands here. And wives, if there is, if there is, in a congregation this size, I imagine there may be, if there is violence or abuse going on in your marriage and you've tried to solve it, you've prayed, there's no solution, I want you to seek out one of the pastors or lay leaders here at the church and say, I need help. I need help. It has to stop. If there is physical abuse in your marriage, it is sin against God, and this verse should never be used to justify it. Once, many years ago, when we lived in another state, Margaret and our three sons, with my blessing, I was at work, but Margaret and our three sons, in the middle of the day, helped a woman in our community move out of her home because she was in an abusive situation with an unbelieving husband. And they, that's a happy ending. It led to reconciliation in the marriage and the stopping of abuse. And last I heard, many years later, the, the marriage was still together and doing well. 1 Peter 3, 1 does not mean it's okay for husbands to be selfish or cruel. Well, then, what does it mean? Point two on the outline, what submission does mean. It means an inward gentleness of spirit that supports the leadership of your husband. It means an inward gentleness of spirit that supports the leadership of your husband. It means saying, first of all, in your heart, my husband is the leader in this relationship. It's not that we share leadership equally. It's not that I'm going to compete with him and resist his leadership. I'm going to submit to it. I'm going to support it. I'm going to affirm him in it. I'm going to encourage him in it. Peter says, likewise, you wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see a respectful and pure conduct. Be subject to, hupotasso, a Greek word that just regularly, regularly, regularly in the ancient world is used of one person being subject to another in, in various kinds of authority and affirming that leadership of that leader. Now look, here's another example. The muffin was a little thing, but, but life is made up of little things, isn't it? And uh, here's another little example. After we'd been coming to Scottsdale Bible Church a while, Margaret and I got in a pattern. After my 
enrichment class was over in the other room, we came across here to this service. And we'd usually come in one of those back doors and sit, sit right over in here someplace. And, and something was happening. See, when we walk in, Margaret's eyes are unbelievable. She can see a thousand things all at once and make a decision really fast. I don't know how she does it. So we'd come in. We both come in. The, I'd, I'd kind of open the door for her. We should, we'd come in. She'd see a place that we should sit. She'd walk over to it and sit down, and I'd go. <laughs> kind of follow along behind. And, you know, after a few weeks, I thought, something doesn't quite feel right about this. And, and so one afternoon, I, I said, Margaret, look, can we talk about something? When we come into the church... We, would it be okay with you just to, to wait for a few seconds and let me find a place to sit and then kind of say, let's sit over here and then we go sit down? Would that be okay? Yeah, sure. That's fine with her. She, I don't think she, she knew how, how I was feeling or what was going on. It was a little tiny thing. But, but life is made up of little things. She was submitting to my leadership by saying yes. I hope in your marriages you will always agree. But you know what? It's not always going to happen. Sometimes you just see things differently. Well, if you can put off a decision when you disagree, then put it off and talk again later. But if you have to decide, I think this passage is saying the husband is the leader and he must make the decision. And wives, I think when Peter says, be subject to your husbands, Peter wants you to say, John, I, I don't agree with you on this, but I'm going to support your decision. I'm not going to grumble or sulk or say I told you so. I support your decision, and I'm going to help make it work, even though I don't agree. <clears throat> Wives, be subject to your own husbands. It means authority in the family is not just 50-50. The leadership role, the final human authority, is the husband. A, a few verses later, Peter talks about a gentle spirit in verse 4. And the Greek word praus means not pushy, not demanding, not selfishly assertive, not insisting on your own way. I'm just going to give a parallel to other areas of life because this isn't rocket science to affirm somebody else's leadership. It's, it's something that's kind of just a normal part of life. I, now let me go, go into the workplace situation. Think back to different jobs you've had. How many of you have have been in a situation where <clears throat> you were subject to somebody else's authority at work, <clears throat> and it was a good situation. You had, you had a manager or a foreman or, or a boss or something that appreciated the employees, that valued the employees, but, but she or he was in charge. Now, how many of you have been under an authority like that where it worked well, it was a good situation? I just, you know, several of you, do you, do you know what I mean? Lots of you. Was it that hard? I mean, when I'm teaching over a different number of years. We had different, one time I was department chairman, another time a colleague was department chairman. And we, he, the department chairman was somebody else. He said, well, I want you to teach this class at 8 in the morning in this room. Okay, I did it. I mean, it was, it's not demeaning. It's not dehumanizing. It doesn't mean I'm less of a person. It just means somebody was the leader and somebody wasn't. So that's point A. 
an inward gentleness of spirit that supports the leadership. It supports the leadership of your husband. B, <clears throat> what submission does mean? It's an imitation of both Sarah and Jesus. Let's take Sarah first. Verse 5, Paul, or Peter says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God... He's thinking of many women in the Old Testament. He's probably thinking of Ruth and Esther and Hannah and Abigail and, and the godly woman in Proverbs 31, many of them, used to adorn themselves. And that used to adorn represents the uh, uh, translation of a, of a Greek imperfect tense that indicates ongoing habitual activity. This was the pattern of life. Uh, by submitting to their own husbands, present participle in Greek, ongoing pattern of activity. And then he gives an example. As Sarah obeyed Abraham. He picks probably the most famous woman in the Old Testament, the mother of all the Jewish people, Sarah. And she followed Abraham. She, she, she did what he told her to do. Now, I'm not saying that husbands should give commands like an army officer. I think that'd be a huge mistake. It wouldn't be treating your wives with honor. But I do think it's fine for husbands to ask their wives to do something, to follow them somewhere. And, and wives, unless, unless it's sin, unless you talk to your husband and he changes his mind, I, I think this means that you should do what he asks you to do. And Peter says, and you are her children. You are Sarah's children. You're imitators of Sarah. You're getting the kind of blessing from God that Sarah got. You are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Peter knows that the barrier to submission is fear. It's fear that something you're going to be hurt. You're going to lose your identity. You lose your person, personhood. Something. But not fearing, not fearing. How do you get to that point? That comes from trusting in God from a quiet confidence in God that enables a woman to submit to her husband's authority without fear that it will ultimately be harmful to her well-being or her personhood. Now, what about this? Calling him Lord. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, here's what I think this is meaning. It's from Genesis 18, 12. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure. The, the Hebrew word Adoni <clears throat> is not applied only to God, or the related word Adonai is applied to God, but it's also applied in the Old Testament to a king, to a prince, to a governor, to a master in a, in a workplace, a master of servants. It's even applied to a priest or a prophet. Here it's applied to a husband. It's a general acknowledgement of someone's else, someone else's authority in the Old Testament. And and Peter doesn't say that all wives should call their husbands Lord. In fact, well, Margaret is here this morning. She doesn't mind. She informed me that she was not going to do that. <laughs> and I don't think she should. I, 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 I think that it would have all the wrong connotations in this culture. But it does mean that, that you should speak of your husband with respect and speak of him in a way that shows a submissive heart to his leadership. Maybe in your tone of voice. Maybe in the way you phrase things. Maybe in your facial expression. Maybe in some other ways that reflect an inward gentleness of spirit that reflect the leadership of your husband. It's an invitation of Sarah 
and Jesus to be subject to your husband. How's that? Jesus is not named specifically here, but Jesus is behind. Jesus is behind all submission to authority everywhere in the Bible. Because Jesus is not only fully man, he is also the eternal Son of God who is equal to the Father in deity, but eternally subject to God the Father in his relationship. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians eleven three. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Paul is saying in the Trinity there is a relationship between the eternal being, the eternal person, rather, of the Father and the eternal person of the Son. And for all eternity, the Father has been Father. And the Son has been Son, not meaning that one was ever created, but that they always existed in that relationship. And that is fulfilled in all the patterns of Scripture where the Father creates through the Son. The Father sends the Son into the world. The Son is at the right hand of the Father bringing petitions and being high priests interceding for us. What this means is that submission to an authority has existed eternally in the very being of God. And wives, that means that when you submit to your husband's authority, you're acting in imitation of God the Son. And the glory of God the Son, it's not demeaning. It's not wrong. The glory of God the Son is that He submits eternally to His Father, who, to whom He is equal in deity and value and in every other way, except they're different in role. And you know what else this means? It means, wives, if this is hard for you, you can talk to Jesus about it. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You're tempted not to be subject to your husband? Jesus was tempted not to be subject, at least to his earthly parents. Luke Luke 2.51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, was submissive to Joseph and Mary when he was growing up as a 12-year-old child. And he understands your struggle. See what submission is. Submission is an attitude that's precious in God's sight. 1 Peter 3, 4, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I want to speak directly to wives again this morning. Do you hear the amazing promise of this verse. It says, when you have a gentle and quiet spirit in your marriage, not contentious and not striving or shrill or harsh and not always fighting against your husband's leadership, when you have a peace within that comes from walking with God and trusting in Him to protect you, God looks at your heart and He takes great delight in it. You know, Many of you wives here today, I know a number of you, many of you, you've been living this verse faithfully 
for years, sometimes decades. You've been supporting and affirming your husband's leadership, and there's great peace in your heart. Your spirit isn't restless and churning and tossing and turning. You have a quiet spirit, and it's beautiful to those around you, and I see it, and it's beautiful, and it's beautiful to God. So I want you to sense this morning the favor of God on you. I want you to sense God saying to you, I am so pleased with you. I take great delight in you. You are my precious daughter in whom I am well pleased. Daughter, receive my approval in your heart. Believe my word when I say your gentle and quiet spirit is very precious to me. That's what God's saying to you in this word. Point three, and we're nearly done here. The blessings that God promises. First, salvation of some unbelieving husbands. Here's a great blessing. Peter says if you do this, some, at least, of unbelieving husbands are going to be one to the Lord. Without a word, by what? By the conduct of their wives. That, without a word doesn't mean you never talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, but it means <clears throat> not very often. And it means that the thing that's going to persuade them is that your life is different. They're going to look and say, what? What? What makes this to be such a wonderful person? It must be Jesus within, and they'll come to Christ. B, there's the blessing of having inward beauty and peace, because Peter says there's an inner person of the heart which has an imperishable beauty, imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. It's more beautiful than you could ever be otherwise. It's imperishable. No wrinkles, no gray hair are ever going to diminish it. They can't touch it. It's inside. It's the true you. And then third, you get another blessing, and that's the freedom from focusing, the freedom from focusing on external beauty. 1 Peter 3.3. 3. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. Now, I know that some Christians in the past have said, oh, look at this. This means women shouldn't braid their hair and they shouldn't wear gold or jewelry at all. My response is that that's wrong because there are three things here. And if the verse says, don't braid your hair and don't put on gold, it also says, don't put on clothing. <laughs> and that can't be right. It's got to be something else. He's saying, don't let your adorning be this. Don't let the, the focus of your desire to be attractive to others, don't let it be on the outside. Let it be in your heart. Let it be inside. Now, I've got to be careful here. Because I believe in general, clothing and jewelry and appearance are more important to women than to men in general. In general, God has given, I believe to you women, a natural appreciation for beauty. And God has given you a natural beauty as a woman. And God values beauty in women. He created it. And you know what? There's an instinct in little girls that I think is different from little boys. Little girls love to play dress-up. You know what is, out of all the books in the world, sold on Amazon.com, tens of thousands of books, you know what's number 347 bestseller? Fancy Nancy. <laughs> Fancy Nancy. My favorite color is fuchsia. That's a fancy way of saying purple. I like to write my name with a pen that has a plume. That's a fancy way of saying feather. <laughs> fancy Nancy likes to do dress up. 
And that's one of the favorite books of our granddaughter, Hannah, who is three. And here she is. <laughs> here she is with her friends, Janie and Ella. That's Hannah. And here she is kind of checking out her attire. <laughs> they love to play dress up. I guarantee you boys are not buying this book. <laughs> you could publish a book called Fancy Clancy and you wouldn't sell any. There's something different and wonderful in little girls. And I don't think it's sin. I think God put it there. I think it can be distorted. I can, it can turn into sin. But I think God put there a delight in beauty. But mistakes can still be made. And women, I just have to ask you to be honest with your hearts here. I don't think we should have any objection in principle with altering your natural body to look better. I do it, I get a haircut. <laughs> Margaret gives me the haircut. But, but we got braces on our kids' teeth. That was altering their natural body. I don't think there's anything wrong with other ways to alter your natural body. I don't think there's anything wrong with having a doctor remove aging spots from your skin. I don't think there's anything wrong with hair coloring. And therefore, I don't have any objection in principle to plastic surgery. In principle. But I think the questions have to be asked. Is it a wise use of money? And is it really to make you look better or is it to try to make you look like someone you really aren't? And I have no objection in principle to women buying and wearing jewelry. It's found in the Old Testament. These things are a source of beauty and they're good to a point. <clears throat> but this verse, <clears throat> don't let your adorning be external, this has to mean something. There's a point, it can vary for each woman in each situation, there's a point where you have spent beyond what God is pleased with. This verse does not mean you have to try to keep up with every non-Christian woman in your neighborhood and on TV whose adorning is only external jewelry and hair and clothes. When you've gone too far, you know one thing's going to happen. You'll know it because it won't bring you God's joy and peace and it won't bring you God's favor. And I have to say honestly, if women go too far on this and make mistakes in this area, any place in the world you know where it is? Hollywood. You thought I was going to say Scottsdale, didn't you? <laughs> Scottsdale's number two. <laughs> so women, beware. There's great temptation here. It's another verse that I think we can't sweep under the rug. It's God's word. I can't say how many clothes are too many or how much jewelry is too much. You test your own heart. And try not to judge others here, but be careful of the example that you set for younger women, even in this church. And if you need to repent in this area and make it right with God, then do that. And then, what's the blessing? Then you'll be free. You'll be free from that never-ending treadmill. You'll be free to place your emphasis on your inner beauty, which brings great joy to God and brings you great joy. Last blessing knowing the favor of God on your life. I've already talked about that. I'm going to skip it. Next week, Jamie's going to talk about husbands. Let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the excellence of your word. Thank you for your ways. Help us to 
follow them and delight in them. In Jesus' name, amen.